we're moving into a series, a new series on the spirituality uh, of everyday life. So we can talk about a lot of what we would consider your dominant religious topics like worship and, and things like that, that that feel religious. We, we only kind of talk about them in religious spaces. But oftentimes we neglect talking about the more, uh, the more practical or mundane aspects of life like time, which we're talking about today, or work uh, or other kinds of relationships like that. And so this series is going to be looking at the practical or normal or mundane parts of life and looking at them from a spiritual lens and saying, might we not be able to learn or apply some things as we kind of move forward that way. So the interesting thing as I was reflecting on time was that um, I really felt uh, at a loss to talk about it um, because I feel very overcommitted with my time. Uh, I feel like I'm constantly going around and talking about how I don't have enough time, um, how all of my time is taken from me. And so I walk around, I think, with a lot of guilt or pressure with regard to time and, and just feeling like I'm struggling to keep up. Um, and as I prayed and prayed and kind of um, was talking to God on this, I began to realize that maybe I'm, I'm not the only one um, and that maybe this is something we can talk about together, that it's not the idea that we come in perfect with regard to time, but it's something that's common to all of us and we wrestle with it. And so we can kind of parse that out maybe together. The interesting thing about time is that it is very indiscriminate, meaning all people, all human beings, have exactly the same amount of time. Some of us are born with maybe better genetics. Some of us are born into money or position. Uh, We have a lot of things that are different between people in this country, between people in different countries, but it doesn't matter where you live on planet Earth, we all are level when it comes to time. We have the same amount of time. Nobody has more than anybody else. And so the question really is, how do we understand this? Because as we spend our, our, our hours is how we spend our days is ultimately how we spend our months and then our life. And so we really want to reflect on this. So uh, my first take on this message was really about how to better spend time. It was kind of where I'm personally at. Um, how, do I, how do I make better use of my time? How do I get greater value for my time? I recently picked up a book called Deep Work. Uh, Deep Work is written um, basically on how to pattern your life to capture the, the times in your day, the chunks in your day when you can focus really well and then come out of that into different spaces, more relational or even relaxation or entertainment, but to pattern it so that the days don't just go by and you're not able to really produce at a high level. So this book, Deep Work, has kind of been on my mind. But the more I started thinking about time from that angle, I really, I really hit into this idea that um, time comes with a lot of guilt. And I wanted to kind of reflect on where does that come from? That this idea that uh, every time I think about time, I feel like a failure. Every time I think about time, I, I feel like I want to hide from God. Every time I think about time, I have regrets. And where did all this heaviness come from if the gospel is really a gospel of freedom and if Jesus really talked about the Sabbath, which is a, a time marker in our week, and talked about it as being 
made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, these kind of patternings of time were meant to serve or to help us rather than the other way around. So I want to just go back in time and look at a little bit of history and engage how the church or the Protestant church came to think about time. And it really begins with John Calvin in Geneva. And so John Calvin uh, is a French-born uh, Protestant leader, one of the, the chief figures in the Reformation, lived from 1509 to 1564. So if you want to kind of locate this, he's living in the time of Henry VIII, then into Bloody Mary, and then into the reign uh, of Elizabeth. And he's kind of in this period of a lot of religious revolt. He's a little bit later into the Reformation. Luther, uh, Martin Luther in Germany, begins the Reformation in 1519. So John Calvin would have been just 10 when the Reformation or this kind of reaction to Renaissance Catholicism began. So John Calvin was in France, and we'll show a map here that'll help kind of set the, the stage a bit. Um, John Calvin was in France here, but the religious kind of persecution that came, you had a Catholic ruler that wanted to suppress the Reformation from happening in his lands like it was happening in other places. And so uh, in this kind of unsafe period, Calvin and a number of others uh, flee. He first fled to Geneva, which is now in modern-day Switzerland, uh, and then was kind of uh, not welcomed there, traveled for another three years, ultimately comes back, and it becomes known as really Calvin's Geneva. So what happens in Geneva at this point in time is it's like a city-state. It's not a part of Switzerland at the time. It's a French-speaking area, but it's not a, a part of France. And there's this battle that happens between whether the, the civic authorities or the city leaders are going to dictate terms to the religious leaders or whether the religious leaders are really going to set the stage and say to the city leaders what this city is going to be patterned like. And ultimately, the, the religious reformers kind of went out. So this becomes, for all intent, uh, intents and purposes, a, a theocracy or a religiously run kind of city-state. So that's Calvin's Geneva. And so in this time, this becomes, or what Calvin really wanted it to be, the beating heart of the Reformation is how it was referred to. They began doing uh, secondary education or elementary education to help teach children how to read and then birthed a university where they were training what was known as Huguenot preachers. Uh, the French Huguenots, these, are, these little triangles are Huguenot churches, uh, but those are really just Calvinists. They were training preachers to go back out and to start these kind of Reformation churches that were patterned not along the lines of the medieval Catholic church or the monasteries, but were patterned in a new way and functioned very differently with the preaching of, of the scriptures really is the dominant thing. More than once a week, uh, quite often actually, in Calvin's Geneva for a long period of time, it was daily sermons, Okay. Um, they're sending out these people, and you see John Knox, who trained in Geneva, ending up in Scotland. You see the Netherlands, because the, the French Huguenots kind of went north, where the persecution wasn't as bad. And you see the Reformation really take hold uh, in the Netherlands. That's why if you go to Grand Rapids or any kind of Dutch areas in, in the United States, um, they're, they're referred to as Dutch Reformed 
because they were the, the Reformed faith is really another way of naming Calvin or what was going on in Geneva. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of the traits of Geneva end up in the New World because John Knox, the reformer that ends up in Scotland, uh, patterns Scotland after this very religiously dominated kind of way of John Calvin. And when uh, the king of Scotland, King James VII, became, becomes the king in England, I think about 1607, so uh, Queen Elizabeth has no kids, so her distant kind of cousin, um, the, the child of Mary, Queen of Scots, ends up taking over the throne of England. And that's really when you begin to see Scotland and England united under one king. Um, and so the interesting thing here is that a lot of people thought that England was going to become, like Scotland, an example of this kind of heavy Reformation thinking. But King James, who comes down, um, who was king from a young age on... Uh, didn't like how the religious leaders were really uh, pushing in and, and shaping how he led the country and saw this opportunity of going to England as kind of breaking from that. So he continues on with this Church of England kind of middle road between the Catholic and the Protestant. And, and so you see a real reaction coming from the Protestant or what became known as the Puritans in England. So when you get the people that are fleeing um, and, and coming over to the United States, what are they bringing with them? They're bringing with them the desire or the ideas, several of them, of having this kind of uh, new religion in a new world that was patterned after the Reformation as it was being spread in Geneva. All of that to say Geneva and, and what happens there ends up shaping a lot of what's come to be known as Protestantism. Not all of us grew up in a Lutheran church, which would be the other branch um, one of the other branches of Protestantism. So what did it look like in Geneva? Um, I think it would shock you. In Geneva, uh, Calvin got rid of all uh, instruments from worship because he was worried about it inflaming the emotions or the passions too much. So we could sing only psalms because it engages the mind and connects us back to Scripture. Calvin shut down the, the bars and... And, and didn't get rid of the alcohol, but changed the leadership for a period of time that you could drink in the bars, but only if you listened to, to scripture passages being read as, as you're drinking. That only went on for a, a number of years, and, and as you can imagine, it reverted back to kind of a normal way of functioning. But Calvin was remaking society um, into a, a way where the religion um, or, or the way they were reading Scripture was dominating every part of life. The, the religious leaders that were being raised up, the volunteer ones, the deacons, and then the elders, were going into people's homes and doing home visits to check on the orthodoxy of people and to make sure that they were living according to the dictates of Scripture, both in terms of their thinking and their actions. And if they weren't, then church discipline would be enforced on them, and ultimately they would be excommunicated if they didn't comply. So basically pushed out of Geneva. Um, it's, uh, it's a crazy thing that in the Reformation... Um, you see that if you had a disagreement with the, the, the leaders, that they would actually use the civic authorities to punish you. 
Um, and if you disagreed and came into the town and were guilty of spreading heresy of what was viewed as salt, uh, false teaching, um, another way of looking at that would be uh, an act of sedition, really, right? Then if you did this and you came into the town, they would uh, warn you not to come into to the town. And then if you did, you'd be, um, you'd be either pierced through the tongue. Uh, your tongue would be pierced, not in a cool, jewelry, jewelry, you know, modern way but in a, in a negative way, and then oftentimes killed. Um, I've, been, I've been to Geneva once, been to Zurich, and Zurich in the middle of the river, I think I've, I've shared with you before, there's a, a place where you have a marker saying that's where they gave the third baptism to people. So people were baptized, the Catholic Church, right, as infants, um, and, and, uh, and then the Anabaptists came in and said, no, you need to baptize as adults the way Antioch would do in the river um, during the summer. We have our, our baptism and we, we baptize people that are making a profession of faith. And that was viewed as wrong or as heresy and that you were going to lead people astray from infant baptism. So they'd give you the third baptism. The third baptism was to tie weights around you to take you out into the middle of the river to make a, a, basically an example of you. And, and then execute you, you would, by drowning, the third baptism. <clears throat> so the interesting thing about Calvin is, as, as I've reflected on it, because I like a lot of what Calvin brings. And when I was in seminary, most of my friends were ardent Calvinists, meaning kind of the thought of John Calvin in his institutes, uh, what's known as the five points of Calvinism, were really revered and looked up to. And it's kind of like, I would say, Michael Jordan. Um, I, I was... Recently this week, looking at uh, CNN and the statue of Michael Jordan, it's still out in front of the stadium, kind of the quintessential Jordan pose as he's flying through the air. I still remember those first dunks where he took off from like the free throw line. Um, I'm beginning to wonder if people even remember that anymore. It's just become this icon image of, of Jordan, right? <clears throat> That's the picture we have of Michael Jordan. And we all kind of love and revere it. And it takes on a different connotation than the person of Michael Jordan. Like who Michael Jordan is to society or to history or to basketball fans takes on its own aura, if you will. And we never actually look at the person himself. Um, what is Michael Jordan like with, with his friends? What is it like if Michael Jordan meets a stranger? Is he nice? Is he not? What, what, how does he treat his wife uh, or kids, or has he, how has he treated them historically? Like the complexities of the individual get completely lost, and we end up just replacing it with this figure that has kind of an aura in our mind. Does that make sense? So John Calvin's very much the same thing. And, and it kind of deconstructed for me when I realized that if I went to Calvin's Geneva, Calvin would have me killed. It changed how I, I viewed him. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I started thinking, you know, maybe Paul was right when he said that we have to hang on to the good and let go of the bad, that we, we test everything. So even Calvin, a flawed human individual, we come to Calvin and we look at him and say, what can we learn, but what can we do better? How would we change it, right? So the interesting thing as relates to this morning and this idea of time is that Calvin is the father of, of punctuality. He's the father of, of this value or virtue of punctuality. That this idea of punctuality, of being on time as a spiritual virtue, right, 
is, is completely unknown to antiquity and it's completely unknown to the contemporaries of John Calvin. Erasmus, uh, a number of others, Montaigne, a number of other thinkers, you see nothing about this idea of, of timeliness or punctuality. It, it was a Calvin thing. Now, where did that come from? Why, why was Calvin into punctuality? He believed that uh, the big thing about Calvin is the sovereignty of God, that God is supreme over everything, and that God sees every single minute of your life. And since he sees every single minute of your life, we're going to have to give an accounting for every minute of our life. And the accounting is going to have to be, did I use this minute and every minute to, the, to the, the glory of God, to uphold the supremacy of God in all things. Is, that, it's, is it beginning to feel pretty weighty? Okay, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting there now, right? So, um, so Calvin talked about time endlessly. Um, here's just two examples from letters. He's writing a letter to a guy and he says, Looking back over the course of the last year, I do not remember having had a day as overwhelmed with tasks as today. Indeed, the messenger who was here wanted to take away with him the start of my new book, which was the second uh, edition of the Institutes. And so I had to reread about 20 folios. Then I also had to read and publicly lecture on the scriptures, write four letters, deal with a dispute, and respond to more than 10 people who interrupted me. Therefore, please forgive me if I write a shorter and less detailed account than usual about everything. And then he goes on to write a 10-page letter. Um, Towards the end of his life, Calvin writes, My lack of time, faithful and honorable brother, leads me to write a brief reply to your long letter. I received it shortly before noon. Two hours later, I went to our uh, ecclesiastical gathering, which finished at 3 o'clock. And until now, I have been talking with our brother up to the point when other colleagues returned. Please forgive me, therefore, for having to be brief. He used to use the word minutes on average three times in every sermon. And you're talking about an age where nobody really had a wristwatch. Um, wristwatches uh, are invented uh, at the, the rudimentary stages in Germany about the middle of the 1500s and slowly over time kind of developed. So there's really no idea that, that Calvin would have had a wristwatch and frankly, uh, most men didn't wear wristwatches until about uh, World War I. Um, and, and the idea being there that they had pocket watches up until then, but in the middle of, of war, you couldn't really um, take out uh, a pocket watch. You needed your hands. And so men began to wear wristwatches and they began to be manufactured to give to people. Second World War, giving them to pilots, same kind of reason. The word watch actually... Um, comes from the watchman and basically how to time your watch uh, on the city gates or with the military as you're changing out uh, different people on guard or doing their watch, right? That's kind of where it comes from. But there's no sense that Calvin has any idea of time. Um, But there was a city clock in Geneva. There's a picture of Geneva. You can see how small it is, uh, roughly maybe 13,000. But there's uh, a city clock that would have chimed, uh, and just this simple idea of being aware of the minutes uh, and, and as it passes through the day and different places in the city where they would have had these clocks for people to kind of gauge their time by. Um, why does that really matter? What Calvin was saying in this was that you had a vice named idleness and that on the other extreme was going to be this new virtue of punctuality. 
This, this kind of work ethic and this way of bending and making sure that we got the value out of every minute of every day. Calvin was re- reputed to have been so busy so often that I also think that affects the way you teach. Um, I once had somebody back when I was having a lot of stomach problems um, and wasn't sleeping. They said, um, hey, Ken, when you come in in a bad mood um, and preach, you know, you know what happens to us? And I said, I said, no, what happens? He, and and this, this guy said, we leave in a bad mood. And it was, it was really interesting for me to wrestle with that and to go, how do I do the work ahead of time to not let how I slept the night before or how my stomach feels or whatever else color my tone or, or how I feel, right? I think that happens with preachers. I think with Calvin, being so obsessed and stressed about time also then gets projected onto other people. But it's a, a vice on one side and a virtue on the other. Now, this, this flows into not only Calvin's teaching, but the people that he's discipling, the leaders that are, that are being sent out, and the way that time is being structured in the churches and the way that, that people are being taught to structure their days in everyday life according to this kind of new work ethic of punctuality and redeeming of time, which is one big, massive part of how we get this thing called the Protestant work ethic, right? Um, it's why the Dutch uh, are, are such hard workers. I'm just, just kidding. Um, uh, no, honestly, the Dutch are known for being incredibly punctual and, and having a certain kind of work ethic. And you see how this kind of thinking traveled to Holland as well as to the people that ended up and brought the Protestant work ethic with them to the United States. And we have grown up um, several hundred years later of this idea of idleness, um, not doing something with your time is somehow a sin or bad. And so when I reflect on what's going on in my own soul and I begin to feel that I'm always burdened with this pressure of time, that when I'm in the house and I notice that I'm kind of walking around, Tamara will say, like, you're, you're pacing again, right? That what's really going on is I don't know how to just sit and be. Um, I take my daughters out for their birthday and their half birthdays, and you guys know this, and it's daddy-daughter date, and, and uh, it's dinner, and then makeup or you know, some jewelry, and it's my time with them. And I find myself sitting there um, on one hand going, there's nothing more valuable that, that I do in my life than this. On the other hand, knowing that my phone is there and feeling like I should be working. Like, I, I'm tyrannized by the pressure that comes from time. And so I want to go back to the scripture that was read uh, in Ecclesiastes and look at the way the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about time. Because I think it's a bit different than what we've inherited with this make every minute count idea of time. Here's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time uh, to kill and a time to, you know, that's always a funny one, Um, time to kill uh, and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up. 
time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now in verse 9 it says, What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden of God that God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the, heart, uh, in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. The writer of Ecclesiastes is giving us a sense of time that's um, a lot more tied to this idea of season. There's a time for everything, a season for everything under, um, under the sun. That, that there's the broad kind of arcing themes that come into life and that those are the things that in some sense we, we should be bending toward or obeying. And I think we kind of do this naturally, right? The weather does it to us. You know, summer comes and we naturally bend to kind of a different mode of existence, a different season in how we pattern our life and our time. I think we know when, when a loved one dies that we go into a season. It might not have been what we were looking forward to a week ago or a month ago or what we planned on, but this is where we're now going. We're going into a season of reflection, of mourning, of grieving. When we go to weddings, when we go to other things, we know it's a time for celebration. Weddings in Jesus' time were not just a two-hour affair. Um, they were a weekend affair. Um, that's why Jesus travels and other people travel to the wedding and you've got these seven big barrels about the size of a keg um, that, that run out and now Jesus needs to replace them kind of with these other barrels of wine. Like they're there for the weekend. They're staying overnight with relatives. It's a time to celebrate, right? Um, I think that Life naturally does this for us, but I also think that spiritually our conversation with God and, and trying to hear God's guidance should be speaking into how we understand and structure our time as well. That we should be asking of God in this season of life, in this season of parenthood, in this season of ministry, what is your priority for me? I might not understand it. It might not fit the categories that make me feel comfortable. But what is it that I'm supposed to move into for this season? Knowing that the season might be short, might be long, and might transi uh, transition into a different season. And I think we see this example in Jesus. So if we kind of look at this idea that Jesus kind of was a bit more freewheeling with time than what we've, we, we tend to think when we look at Calvin... We come to um, Mark, so the Gospel of Mark, and Mark um, chapter 1, so this is the beginning of Mark, we see Jesus go, and he goes up to Peter's house, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, uh, in I think is what it is, uh, in verse 30, chapter 1, verse 30, and then Jesus, in the evening, um, begins to heal a lot of people. So the word kind of gets out that there's somebody that's a miracle worker. And so people start to flock to him. And so uh, after sunset, he's healing the sick and the demon possessed. And the whole town gathers at the door. And Jesus healed many who had, uh, who had various diseases. And he also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. 
And so very early in the morning, so some, some point in the night, this shuts down as people go home or go to sleep. And so when the disciples wake up very early in the morning, while it was still dark, um, they go looking for Jesus and they find him in a solitary place where he was praying. And when they found him, they explained, everyone is looking for you, which is obvious, right? Um, you healed a bunch of people last night. There's twice as many people at the door now. Um, they're looking for you. It's, it's time to, to get back at it. Um, lunch break is over. There's a line of people in the lobby. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. And so then he left and he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And so you get this picture of Jesus that he's not bending into the time um, categories that seem to make sense or that society is kind of putting there for him. Um, he travels into Samaria and the disciples go looking for food and they come back and he's over here having a chat with a woman at a well, which in some sense for a rabbi was uncouth to do, was not, was not what they would have expected or seen as normal. Yet Jesus is bending his time into going, this is the season. This woman is here and this is the kind of conversation I want to have. And so Jesus even says to his disciples, like, they're like, aren't you going to the, the Passover? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to the Passover. And then they go to the Passover and then they look over and, and Jesus is there at the Passover. And they're like, we're really confused. You know, like Jesus was always doing different things than what people thought he should be doing or how time would have been normally structured out kind of in what would have been seen as a religious or normal or practical or prudent way. And I think Jesus was listening or praying to God and seeking guidance um, on a daily basis as to not what would please others or be seen as normal, but God, where are you taking me? What does that season look like with regard to my time? So I see in Jesus a freedom that I want to bring in as a corrective. Aristotle says his rule of the golden mean that, that the virtue is usually between the two extremes. And so if Calvin is coming up with an extreme of idleness on one hand and punctuality on the other, I want to posit that somewhere in the middle is, is the grace, the hardworking um, yet gracious place where we're able to accomplish much, but also do it by experiencing the freedom that Christ came so that we would be able to experience, right? It's for freedom that you've been set free. Therefore, do not let yourselves become slaves again, right? Um, Paul in the book of Galatians. So um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Um, time is here to serve us in God's purposes in our life, not us to serve it as if it's some tyrannical taskmaster. Matthew chapter 6. Um, many will rec recognize this by its familiarity, but I just want to read it again because I think Jesus is really hitting on time here, this idea of, of how we're supposed to look at and think about time. So Matthew chapter 6, um, Jesus says this, starting in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Is all of the stress going to elongate anything? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. 
Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was, uh, in all his splendor was, uh, was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So there's something interesting going on here. Jesus is saying, it's not all going to come through your work or your effort or your need to try and control all of life and produce more and more and more. The, the whole Sabbath was inserted into the week to stop us from escalating production more and more and more. Uh, Walter Brueggemann would call that the system of Pharaoh, of endless productivity. Um, the Sabbath was put in there to break that cycle so that we would be reminded that it's not necessarily the fruit of our labor that's always going to be the, the good things or the things of glory in our life, but oftentimes it's simply God blessing or taking care of us as we walk by faith. So part of faith is not that somehow in all of my work God will redeem it. Part of faith is that sometimes I cannot work and it's going to be okay. That I have to trust God enough that um, people aren't going to think poorly of me. Uh, or that the things that I feel like need to get done with deadlines are somehow going to get done. That there's an opportunity to rest and to trust God with all of the things that are otherwise going to be pressing down on me. So as we kind of go, how do we apply this and look at things? Um, I think it's really interesting to talk about time in today's day and age. Um, World War I... Uh, interesting time, Woodrow Wilson. By the way, um, Geneva was where the, the League of Nations, which was Woodrow Wilson's kind of uh, brainchild, uh, Wilson wanted it in Geneva because that's where the, the Red Cross was, the International Red Cross. So we have this idea of Geneva as this peace place. But in the time of Wilson, in the time of World War I, one-third of all Americans lived on a farm. Not in a small town, but one-third of all Americans lived on a farm. A um, hundred years has changed a lot. I read an article yesterday that said for the first time in American history, there are more 20-somethings living at home with their parents because it's more affordable, things are tough, jobs are hard. More 20-somethings are living at home with their parents than are married or living on their own. Isn't that shocking? Um, society changes fast. It, it moves. It's not the same thing from day to day. I believe Ecclesiastes is right. There's nothing new under the sun. But somehow Ecclesiastes wasn't talking about the internet or social media, right? Because that's very new. And it, and it changes everything. The amount of distraction that comes into life is incredibly high. Stephen Covey, before, uh, before social media was even created gave us this kind of grid, which I think is one of the more helpful things out there of there are things that are urgent and important. Um, you get in a car accident, somebody's hurt. It's urgent and important. Then there's a category of what's important but not urgent. And then you have the category of urgent but not important, which is everything to do with your phone. It's the email it's the phone call, it's the beeping, it's the text message, it's the notifications. It's, it's urgent, it grabs your attention, it distracts you, but it's ultimately not that important. And then you get to this category of not urgent and not important. Most TV watching or video game playing falls in this category, okay? 
But I think what we're dealing with in this age of distractions and with everything changing so fast um, is that we're really struggling with we want to get to the important, but there's so much more today that's urgent than, than ever before. Um, urgent, that grabs our attention, that distracts us, that, that kind of um, breaks into the middle of our train of thought and takes us to a whole different place. They talk about um, employees now not even having one undistracted minute throughout the whole workday, where there's not something going on that breaks the train of thought and you kind of keep trying to reposition it. So as we come to reflect on time, I think the interesting question really simply is this. Um, we have to seek God's wisdom on what the season is and then how to structure our life accordingly. And a couple principles this way. Um, sit down and fill those categories in. Do it by yourself or do it with a spouse. Write down what right uh, now in your life is both urgent and important. And then write down what is important but not urgent. Um, Look into trips, making memories, saving, whatever it might be. And then the category urgent but not important and then not, not urgent and not important. Break it out so that you can see it, so that you can be wise in how you want to think about it. Because oftentimes ha uh, happens to us more than us coming to it and patterning it. The second thing is um, these days time is a lot like money in the sense that we make decisions that mortgage ourselves. Uh, I can go into a car dealership any day this week and I can buy a car. Why don't I? Because taking on a $50,000 loan is mortgaging or borrowing against my future and I don't want to be serving that going forward or it's not the right time or season for me to be doing that, right? So I don't go just buy a car just because, because I see the implications of it through time. A lot of the decisions we make with regard to time borrow into the future. Um, I, I talk to parents who have kids in sports all the time that are like, we never really knew. Uh, we made the decision back here, but five years later, it's taking something from us that we never really understood. So I think there's three categories. I think there's parents that should have their kids in sports because that's God's will for your family or your kids. Um, there's parents that I think can put their kids in sports and say, but we're going to put parameters on it. And it doesn't mean this is a forever thing. We might do it for two years or three years and then be out when it starts to kind of um, override other values or priorities we have. And then thirdly, there are some people that need to go, the cost is too large. My kids are uncoordinated. Um, <laughs> we need to not go down this road. Um, if you go to Africa or, or lots of other places on the globe, actually, you'll find that the sense of time that we have in the West is not shared universally. A lot of other countries operate on, on a different sense of time. Africa, they call it Africa time. And people will show up a couple hours late. <laughs> they might not show up at all. And that's all um, normal and, and okay. And if you've packed up your stuff and you're about to go on vacation and you're, you're going out the door, and you've planned this vacation, and some relatives or really good friends come walking up, do you know what you do? You turn around, go back in your house, and you, you, you start cooking so that you can entertain and be hospitable to these people that have showed up. It's completely foreign to our understanding of time. And I think what it teaches me is not that one is better and the other worse, but that time 
should follow values and priorities. That me being with one of my daughters ought to take precedent over how I understand or I'm being tyrannized by the dictates of time. And so if we label or kind of come to understand the biblical priorities that I think God would have for us, then maybe, just maybe, we can make time serve us rather than the other way around. Um, I'm going to leave it there. I want, to, I want to transition real quickly. We're going to be taking, we're going to set up our services for a while in a different way where we have a period of revelation, which is preaching and teaching, and then a, a, a period or a time set aside for response. And response is really where we get to worship. Um, there's going to be an area for prayer. And if you uh, are so inclined, the Lord's table is here as well. If this is your response in terms of an act of worship and, and being in the house of the Lord, what these are are ways for you to respond um, in, in our times of worship. It's not meant for you to be pigeonholed into prayer, into worship in a certain kind of way, or even having to come forward for Lord's, uh, the Lord's table if you don't want. So this is a time for you to, um, to respond in the way that you'd like. Um, and the interesting thing about studying the Reformation and Calvin this week, uh, I went down one day in Ontario with Mike Saba and some other people from Killens College on Friday, and there was an Evangelical Theological Society meeting talking about the Reformation. Went down Thursday, came back Friday. But the lecture, this, this professor of, of, uh, at Westminster Seminary, one of the leading thinkers on the Reformation, said something really fascinating. He said, more ink was spilled in all of the 1500s, the 16th century, which is the time of the Reformation. More ink was spilled arguing about the sacraments uh, than anything else. You had the wars of religion. You had the break with Catholicism. You had all of these things going on. And more ink was spilled arguing about um, the sacraments, what, it was, what, what baptism should mean, what the Lord's table should mean. Um, and, and what I kind of have come out of that thinking was they really missed it. I think like Calvin missed it with time that the sacraments are important, that time is important, that both of them are given to us by God to be used and they're meaningful. But what matters more than the, the symbols and the things that God has given to us as tools is the grace that we have for one another that binds us together. If the sacraments were going to be the unifying thing, then in the Reformation, you would have seen them all come together. Yet, yet they divided themselves so thoroughly the sacraments need and always required our times of worship, need and always required our times of prayer, need and always require our time that we structure to be together, always needs and requires, first and foremost, grace. That we love one another as the one commandment that Jesus gave us. And in doing so, we can find unity even in differences and even in different expressions of some things we hold in common. Does that make sense? So our, our sermon series is going to be structured with revelation and then response. So as the band comes out, you respond as God leads. Meet God, whatever you do this morning, in worship, in prayer, in coming down and taking of the table. But whatever you do, seek God. Come to know and understand grace that God is not judging every single minute. He's provided space for you to rest like the flowers of the field, like the birds of the air. Amen.